of St. Mark. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea they were fishermen. <clears throat> and Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets, and immediately called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they followed him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about fishing, the very first thing that comes to mind is the opening of the Andy Griffith show. Andy and, and Opie walking along a country road to a pond together. Fishing poles are resting on their shoulders. Opie's barefoot. His jeans are rolled up. Dad and son enjoying the day. I mean, in that opening scene, every week, along with the sort of relentlessly upbeat whistling, was meant to recall a simpler, more optimistic time when the kind of things you worried about were dill pickle contests and who'd sing solos in the community choir. The sheriff didn't carry a gun, and people could let themselves in and out of one of the two jail cells. <laughs> when I hear the, the, that music and I see Andy and Opie walking down that dirt road, the, the world feels not entirely lost. Of course, we don't often stop to wonder why Mary Mayberry looks so dissimilar from the world that we inhabit. I mean, scoured my memory for the appearance of one black person strolling into the sheriff's office or Floyd's barbershop, for instance. I mean, I can't remember one. No nuclear threats, no climate change, no insurrection at the Capitol, no babies in cages. I mean, I see those fishing poles and I'm, I'm, I'm instantly transported to a different, uh, friendlier world. And for most of us, gone fishing is a cultural sort of shorthand for checking out of the madness for a little bit, enjoying nature, getting our heads together, Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn dangling their feet in the water, expertly wielding their cane poles. Remember when I was a kid, <clears throat> walking to a nearby pond, uh, carrying my Kmart fishing pole with a Zebco reel. We catch sunfish, bluegills, and we toss them back. Simpler times. In fishing, I would venture to guess, in most of our minds, is a, a hobby. Uh, it's a sport, 
something people do to relax. But, I mean, it's important to remember that fishing in, in that sense is a relatively new modern phenomenon. I mean, for the most, most of the world's history, fishing wasn't about checking out of the workaday world. It was about finding enough to eat, about making a living. There wasn't any sport to it. For countless people down through the ages, fishing, like hunting, wasn't a sport. It was a life-or-death proposition. So in our gospel for this morning, when Jesus wanders up and calls Simon and Andrew, James and John to follow him, and they drop their nets to follow, it's an enormously consequential decision. Because though fishing wasn't a path to riches in the Roman Empire, it was a fairly stable living all things considered. I mean, you could, you could buy a shotgun house, have a backyard, and take the family to Disney World every couple of years. Securing this kind of stable, if, if modest, income would have been difficult to walk away from. But that was precisely what Jesus asked his disciples to do. As Craig Keener points out, Jesus, calls to, Jesus called to discipleship was a call to, to downward mobility. You can imagine the pitch, right? Hey, y'all, I got a great proposition for you. Take everything you and your family have worked for, perhaps over several generations, and, and, and bet it on a pair of threes. Now, I know a pair of threes doesn't seem like a good bet, but I'm telling you, you, you won't be sorry. And now, further complicating matters, Keener goes on to argue, is the fact that Jesus called challenged the settled social norms around the priority of family relationships. I mean, when Jesus calls James and John, for instance, and they leave their old man on the boat with his mouth hanging open, I mean, you can, you can imagine the subsequent conversation, right? Hey, where are y'all going? No idea. Well, when will y'all get back? Don't know. Okay, so uh, who are you going with? Nah, never met him before. Well, what about the business? I mean, I got a boat payment coming up. Sorry, Pops. <laughs> See you around. <laughs> See, not only did Jesus go out searching for disciples near the bottom of the economic barrel and ask them to forfeit what little economic stability they had, he asked them to walk away from their families. And in a culture that assumed familiar, familial relationships were fundamental, Jesus' appeal couldn't help but appear scandalous. And he made the prospect of joining him about as unappealing as he possibly could have. And what I haven't mentioned so far is the obvious question, which is why would these fishermen drop their nets to follow Jesus? And not only drop their nets, but drop them immediately, according to Mark. I mean, it's a pretty flimsy sales proposition, if you ask me. Jesus not only fails to give a compelling reason to follow him, he doesn't give any reason at all. At least not one that we can see. Just follow me. Now, I imagine most people, if they ever give it much thought, find Jesus' lack of salesmanship rather confounding. Follow me and I will make you fish for people. So, I mean, let me ask you, why would anyone drop their New York Times crossword puzzle, let alone their nets, which is to say their primary means of making a living and fulfilling their responsibilities to their families, to follow 
a stranger into an unknown future. I mean, it, it, it doesn't make sense, does it? Now, traditionally, the story of the calling of the disciples and their dropping of their nets to follow Jesus and fish for people is understood to be a foundational story uh, for evangelism, right? Evangelism is, of course, church speak for saving souls, or at, put more simply, for, for converting people. I mean, that's the common understanding, right? So the way this passage has historically been interpreted finds the disciples dropping their nets, leaving their families, and giving up what little economic stability they might have enjoyed for what? To fish for people? I mean, that's what gets them out of their boats and prompts them to take a swan dive off the socioeconomic cliff? Well, let me ask you a question. Does that make any sense to you? I know, me either. But there's another way to account for Simon, Andrew, James, and John's willingness to hop on the Jesus Express. Now, notice how our passage for this morning is introduced. Now, after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Now, the backdrop for our passage today is the arrest of the prophet John the Baptist by the client ruler Herod Antipas. And if you remember the story, it, John got on Herod's bad side by criticizing the ruler's marriage to his brother's wife, right? It ultimately cost him his head. But you see, tensions between Herod, Antipas, and the peasants over which he ruled was already pitched. And John the Baptist just represents a prophetic no to the oppressive and exploitative practices of the empire over which Herod Antipas ruled in Galilee. John, and then later Jesus, spoke out against poverty-inducing policies on behalf of the peasants and the artisans, which is to say, on behalf of almost everybody not employed by Caesar, Herod Antipas, or the temple. Now, around the time of Jesus' birth, there was a messianic figure named Judas of Galilee. Now, Judas led an insurrection against the census system, which, you know, if we step back for a moment, feels kind of like a dumb thing to fight a revolution over, right? Until you realize that the only purpose of the census was to understand how many people lived in an area, identify them, so that tax assessments could be levied. Now, these taxes, which were levied on behalf of three different entities at this point, Caesar up in Rome, Herod Antipas, and the temple itself. And these taxes and tributes could amount to as much as 45 to 50 percent of the goods produced by peasant farmers, artisans, and fishermen. Now, in a culture where about 97 percent of the population lived close to the edge of extreme poverty, taking half of what people produced was obviously an unsustainable uh, prospect over the long haul. 
I mean, people were frequently caught in a cycle of indebtedness that, 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 that pushed them into poverty and hunger and, and disease. So Judas, in 4 BCE, rose up and he led a popular violent revolt. According to Josephus, there was Judas, son of the brigand Ezekius, who had been a man of great power and who had been captured by Herod only with great difficulty. This Judas, Josephus tells us, when he had organized at Sepphoris in Galilee, a large number of desperate men raided the palace. Taking all the weapons that were stored there, he armed all of his followers and he made off with all the goods that had been seized there. And as one historian has pointed out, not long after uh, um, he led the charge against the census, Judas the Galilean was captured by Rome and then killed around 6 BCE when Jesus was about 10 years old or so. As retribution for the cities having given up its arms to Judas' followers, the Romans marched to Sepphoris and they burned it to the ground. And then men were slaughtered. The women and children were auctioned off as slaves. More than 2,000 rebels and sympathizers were crucified en masse. A short time later, Herod Antipas arrived and immediately set to work transforming the flattened ruins of Sepphoris into an extravagant royal city fit for a king. So let me ask you this. You want to know how Antipas raised the money to rebuild Sepphoris into a royal city? <laughs> That's right. Taxes on the poor. You want to know how the actual construction itself got done? Forced labor conscripted from the peasants, especially artisans, you know, carpenters and masons like Joseph and his boy Jesus. Guess where Sepphoris, which is Herod's, uh, Herod Antipas's new royal city, was? Well, it was, a f it was four miles up the road from Nazareth, <laughs> Jesus' hometown. So Jesus grew up most likely watching his neighbors and his father make the four-mile walk from the work that would sustain their families to work on Antipas's pet project. Jesus himself might conceivably have been conscripted to provide his labor to build the king's wealth and power as a boy. And even so, he, he, he grew up with all of the people uh, who had to live through the aftermath of the great uh, massacre that, that, that took place just years earlier. So, so when Mark starts out Jesus' ministry in Galilee mentioning John the Baptist who's himself another political rabble-rouser, having been arrested by Antipas, well, his readers know that what's happening has to do with Antipas's kingdom of exploitation of the poor. So Jesus announces, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. When he says this, the good news that Jesus is announcing is a new realm in which God is in control and not Antipas. Because Antipas has shown his willingness to sacrifice the vulnerable in the pursuit of his own wealth and power. 
And as the case of John the Baptist illustrates, he's willing to kill anybody to get his way. Now, back to the issue of why Simon, Andrew, James, and John might have accepted Jesus' call to follow him and fish for people. As I've said, the traditional rendering of this call narrative is that Jesus is calling disciples to help him convert people. Again, such a call doesn't feel very compelling given what these newly minted disciples are asked to give up in order to wander around knocking on doors, passing out tracts, and saving souls. But as Chad Myers has shown us, reference to fishing for people wouldn't have been a new concept to the Israelites of Jesus' day. The metaphor of fishing for people appears on a few occasions in the Hebrew Scriptures, which is to say the only Scriptures that Jesus and his followers would have had any knowledge of. The prophet Jeremiah, for example, uses the metaphor of fishing for people as a as God's condemnation of Israel. I am now sending for many fishermen, says the Lord, and they shall catch them. And then afterward I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks, for my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my presence, nor is their iniquity concealed from my sight. And I will repay double their iniquity and their sin, because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. Indeed, the hooking of fish is a euphemism in the Hebrew Scriptures for judgment on the rich and the powerful. Amos says, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on Mount Samaria, who oppress the poor and crush the needy, who say to their husbands, Bring something to drink. The Lord God has sworn by God's holiness, the time is surely coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, (laughs) even the last of you with fish hooks. Ezekiel adds, Thus says the Lord God, I'm against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon sprawling in the midst of the channel, saying, My Nile is my own, I made it for myself. I will put hooks in your jaws, and make the fish of your channel stick to your scales. I will draw you up from your channels with all the fish of your channels sticking to your scales. And I will fling you into the wilderness, you and all the fish of your channels. You shall fall in the open field and not be gathered and buried. To the animals of the earth and to the birds of the air, I have fed you as food. Now, Let's be honest, it's, it's kind of hard to find Opie and Andy in that, isn't it? I mean, fishing here isn't sport. In fact, it's not even fishing on which to subsist. This fishing that the uh, prophets in the Hebrew Scriptures talk about is judgment against those who would defy God, those who would oppress and exploit the weak and the dispossessed, those who try to use their power to justify, uh, justify their own lofty existences. As Jesus says, these tyrants and oppressors need to repent because there's a new ruler who's going to go fishing, hooking the jaws of the unjust and the proud, leaving them out in the wilderness for the carrion eaters to pick apart. Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, or as Amos said, uh, 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 
a, a new realm is coming upon you. So when Jesus calls Simon, Andrew, James, and John to follow him, and he says he will make them fish for people, he's issuing a, a, a call to a kind of political resistance against the powerful enemies of God who have been grinding them and their families to dust beneath the heels of their boots. This, this call to the very people who've been taxed into starvation, who've, who've been persecuted and killed for any resistance to the king, who've been trampled on and used as beasts of burden, is a powerful call to rise up and work toward establishing a, a new political realm in which God, and not Herod Antipas, is the ruler. A, a new realm in which those who've been taxed into abject poverty are finally the ones who will have been uh, given enough. While their tormentors are sent to the lowest place, places at the feast. Uh, a new realm in which those who oppress the poor and crush the needy will finally be removed and will now have to serve those whom they've relegated to the status of outcast and untouchable. Simon, Andrew, James, and John have all tasted the bitter broth that Herod serves up. And Jesus is now calling them to drop their nets, pick up their crosses, to work for the new realm that God has, has in mind. Now, given that, it makes all the sense in the world when Jesus called for them to follow him so that he might make them fish for people, it makes all the sense in the world that they left everything to join in this work for justice. I mean, we live in a world that has seen its share of corrupt tyrants, those who've committed iniquity against God, who've oppressed the poor and crushed the needy, who've convinced themselves that they made the rivers in which they swim, we know what kind of devastation such injustice can inflict on those least able to defend themselves against it. The voiceless cry out to be heard with muffled groans. The powerless struggle to raise their hands to defend themselves against the predations of the mighty. The forgotten thrash about trying to get our attention. Jesus hears them calls out to us to drop our nets and follow as he seeks out the downcast and the dispossessed to restore them to their rightful place in the palm of God's hand. Jesus calls out to us. And the question put to us then is simple. Will we answer Jesus' call to follow? An entire world is waiting to hear our answer. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.